Would you take God's word and turn to the book of Galatians? For those that are visiting, either online or in person, we're in a series in the book of Galatians that we started a few weeks ago. And we're at verses 10 through 12 this morning. I'm always fascinated how things are often transformed to the point that they no longer are recognizable. We do that with words, and we do that with traditions. Take Halloween. Halloween has become an excuse to ask total strangers for candy. (laughs) Um, At its worst, it's a celebration of mindless paganism. But Halloween, if you don't know the history, comes from, it's a shortened version of All Hallows' Eve, which signifies the night before All Saints' Day. And All Saints' Day is where the church celebrates all the Christians who went off before them. It's what we find in Hebrews, where it says there's this great cloud of witnesses. So All Saints Day was a time where they would honor lives that were well lived. And I ask myself, how did it become what it is today? Now here's a personal observation. We've been talking about the gospel and Paul's been talking about another gospel. And I feel this is what's happening to the gospel and the church today. I think there are shifts that make both of them hardly recognizable in the larger picture of American culture. And again, I'm speaking about how God sees us, not how we see ourselves. And when I look at what's happening with at least what people view of the church, some of it is, well, we've earned because... How many times have we made church about us? We've kind of taken a a consumer, narcissistic approach to attract people, and yet that's very antithesis of what the gospel is. And some of it's being painted by people who know nothing of who we are and what we stand for. But Paul understood what was at stake. And so I asked the question as we get into this this morning, do we... So the last couple of weeks, we talked about the nature of the gospels, Jesus Christ, the source of the gospels, God. The object is to deliver us from this present evil. And it confronts the church. Paul does. Because they're inviting another gospel into their lives. And instead of the gospel that's the power of God that saves us unto salvation, we invite a powerless gospel that cannot deliver us from this evil that's around us. Paul understood what was at stake. So let's look at verses 10 through 12. You can follow with me on the screen in your Bibles. There's some Bibles in the pew as well if you want to use those. By the way, if you need a Bible, feel free to take the one that's there home with you. Galatians 1, verses 10 through 12. For I am now seeking, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached, to, preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, there's four observations that Paul makes in this passage. Here they are. Paul says, number one, I am not a people pleaser. Number two, this gospel is not according to man. This gospel, number three, is not revealed by man. 
And then finally, this gospel is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that's kind of the outline, but I want to take the first three together, okay? This gospel is not according to man. It's not revealed by man, and I'm not a people pleaser. Now, I want to take all three because this is not where I want to park this morning, but we need to make comments about it. In some way, you're going to say, isn't this a bit redundant? And Well, that's true. Yet, each is nuanced, and we got to ask why. And the simple answer is this. Because we make everything about us. Even when we try to please others, it's really about us and our self-interest and how we want them to view us. And social media has heightened this, hasn't it? Now, Paul's comments, that's the revelation of Jesus Christ, goes against our culture today. Because what drives us so often is we, we just want to make people like us and we want to please people and we want credit and we want authority. That's the other side. And you know, there's one word we use for this and I don't even know what this word means anymore because it's used so often. It's the word codependency. <laughs> if you have a definition, great. Love you for it. I'm just like, we put it out there for everything. And what it means is we love, we live for others and not for Christ. Now think about that. Now, part of that's an attempt to, to fill this hole inside of us, this void. And we seek this whole people-pleasing thing. And it, and it keeps us, however, from being truthful. And it keeps us from doing what we know we should do because it's about us. Now, of course, there's another side of this. And Paul writes, Timothy, and he says, listen, uh, there are people in the last days that are going to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And we call that today narcissistic Christianity. The word narcissist is just a word for selfishness. And you realize when you say narcissistic Christianity, that's a contradiction. It should not exist in the same sense. But we become self-promoters. It's all about us. It's about, hey, look at me. I remember when my oldest daughter started dating, there was this guy that asked her out, and it's what I termed a pretty boy. You know what a pretty boy is? He thinks he's God's gift to women. And, you know, she was all thrilled that he asked her out. And at the end of the first date, she wants to know what I thought. And I said, well, I said, I think he's a pretty boy. And, of course, she wanted to know what that was. And I told her. And I said, well, listen, if he asks you out again on the next date, just listen. Don't say anything. And see how much he talks about himself. So... She went out on the second date, and it ended with the second date because she's dad, you know? All she did was talk about how great he was. <laughs> he was in the self-promotion. Now, I got to tell you this as a way of self-confession because this whole self-promotion is the greatest temptation of pastors. It really is. Pastors can easily get into the mode of, look what I've done. Look at how many people like me, and that's based upon how many people show up on a Sunday morning or listen to a podcast or, or read the book I wrote. If I did write a book, I haven't. And I'm not saying all this stuff's wrong, but much of the time, we make it really about us. And what happens, and here is the great sin of pastors, it becomes our identity rather than Jesus Christ. 
Now all this, and I don't care what church you may be part of, but here at GBC, all this is God at work. Amen? Amen. And the main job of the pastor, which is me, is to tell people, look at Jesus Christ. Because he is the one who can bring salvation. He is the one, his gospel, that can end this evil in this present age in your life. And my main job is say, hey, listen to him. See him. So I just want to end this first three sections with a biblical witness on what scripture says about pleasing, okay? And I'll just go through a series of verses. You'll see them on the screen. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, that's God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Now, of course, you can take the opposite of that and say, if I'm not pleasing God, pleasing myself, you're not going to be very wise. You're not going to be full of knowledge. And you're going to have a joyless life. Romans 15.1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Romans 15.3. For Christ did not please himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. That's Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6, 6. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the hearts. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 22. And whatever we ask or receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And so Paul's being emphatic. It's not about me. It's not about my authority. It's not about me being a possible. It's not about my position. This is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, period. I remember I had a conversation with Chuck Smith. If you don't know who Chuck Smith is, he was founder of Calvary Chapel, where the whole Jesus movement, what we call contemporary Christian music, started. And if you read his story, not only tens of thousands of people came to salvation through his church, I shouldn't say through his church, but through Jesus Christ's church, they started thousands of churches all around the world. I think the number now exceeds over 5,000. And literally from the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s, it is the single largest church growth movement in our history in the last half century. I remember meeting him and I asked him, I said, why don't you hold a conference on how all this happened, about what you do? I mean, everybody else is. He looked at me and here's what he said. And what would I tell him? Preach the word? <laughs> all, this is due to, all this is not due to man's efforts and ingenuity. All this is a work of the gospel, God's grace. He personally got to baptize over 100,000 people, and I am so jealous. Uh, that would just be, I, I actually met a man on a plane one time that was baptized by him. And, you know, talked about how the water was 55 degrees, and he stood out there for hours baptizing people in the Pacific Ocean. 
But I say this because all this happened because God was using a man who was kicked out of a denomination for embarrassing the leadership. When you find the story, the denomination he was part of had a church growth contest. And they handed out all this material on how you're going to do this and how you're going to grow your church and how you're going to do this. And at the end of the year, at the end of the contest, his church won. So they brought him on stage and asked him how the material helped grow his church. And he said, I threw it in the waste can. (laughs) (laughs) And instead of dealing with their own arrogance and delusions, they got rid of the person who violated their narrative. They said he wasn't a team player. And in the midst of that transition, I think he was around 40 years old when he got asked to leave. And you're like, what am I going to do now? God put him in a place where this denomination wanted to close the church They said, we're going to pay you for a year. We don't care when you do, but it just needs to be put out of its misery. And God transformed that by his work into something that just speaks loud of his glory today. So here's the critical point. This is what I'm trying to say. The gospel is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. It's back to the question of authority. The gospel is based on truth. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying it doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what you think. The gospel is Jesus Christ. But you know what our problem is? It's the first three points. We base things on our experience. And our experience today doesn't flow from the truth. Rather, the truth flows from our experiences. We reverse the order. And this leads to chaos. It leads to self-delusions. It leads to violence. And of course, we never look at the violence and the chaos in our own heart. We just look at it out there and say, if this happens, then. And that's nothing new, is it? I mean, we have this obsession with ourselves and what we feel. There's a field of philosophy called epistemology. And it's really, how do we discern between knowledge and opinions, okay? And that's really a great question. And when you look at our culture, it really isn't anything new that we base things out of our own experiences. I'm going to date myself a little bit, but uh, the year was 1964. Anybody around then? Yeah, okay. If you confess, the Lord shall hear. Um, Presidential election. Barry Goldwater was running. And his slogan was simple. By the way, slogans fascinate me just because they're catchy, they're cute, but I think they're, they're meaningless, okay? That's just my opinion. But people really like them. But here was his slogan. They said, in your heart, you know he's right. Now think about that. That's what a person running for the president of the United States ran on. Now, of course, the other party would mock it, and they said, in your gut, you know he's nuts. Uh, that was their response. <laughs> But think about it for a moment. Everything is based on my personal opinions. Now, if you don't believe me, let's go up to the year about 1990. Another illustration. Woody Allen. Some of you know who he is. He was caught having an affair with his stepdaughter, who he later married. And back then, that was shocking. Now, later, he was accused of, well, molesting their stepdaughter. And in his defense, at the trial, here's what he said. And I quote, the heart wants what it wants. Now think about all these 
shifts of our culture, all this narcissism, and look at where we find ourselves today. There's stuff that's being normalized and even applauded. And I call it normalized craziness because I cannot make sense out of some of this stuff. But it goes back to the issue, I feel, therefore I am. And if I feel it, therefore it's true. And if it's in my heart, then it's true. But my question, when I encounter people like this, I say this. Why would your heart know better than my heart? Because if my heart's truth is different than yours, where do we rest on? And what we've done today by getting into another gospel is we no longer have a uniform source of authority. And when you take away the authority of Jesus Christ in its place, something very demonic takes its place. And history bears witness of this. That's why Paul's stressing the gospel of the revelation of Jesus Christ. He understands to bring in another gospel, we lose everything. And everything is subject to the whims of those in authority. And their job then is to convince and to conform. See, another gospel does not bring power. But the gospel is the power of God. It's not based on experience. And Paul says it's not based on me or any kind of mystical angel experience. We talked about that last week. He says don't fall for some incredible experience that violates the gospel. And I hear this all the time today. People listen to things that violate the very nature of the gospel. That's very truth. And here's what they say. But you know, it really makes me feel good. And that's so tragic. So Paul says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we've lost this reverence and the sacredness of the gospel. You know, what we celebrate this morning at the communion really reinstitutes in our minds that this that Jesus Christ has sole authority in our lives because of his death and resurrection for our sins. Amen? Amen. Now, this gospel should encourage us. By the way, do you know what the word encourage means? (laughs) We always talk about encouraging people. It means to put courage in. Think about that. Now, another scripture, Matthew 18, you can, I'm sorry, Matthew 16, you can turn there. And we see this whole kind of mix-up stuff where Here's flesh and blood, and then here's divine truth. Matthew 16, verse 13 through 18. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And that is a critical question, isn't it? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my father, it's divine revelation who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Divine revelation. Peter, you're going to be one of the church leaders. And you can imagine Peter feeling good that he got the answer right. (laughs) But just after this, just after Peter is feeling pretty good and he says, you know, hey, Jesus gave me the name Rock. I like that. 
And Jesus starts telling them about his death and resurrection, being really clear about what's about to happen. I'm going to die, rise again in three days. He outlines it, but Peter didn't even hear about the resurrection. He just got lost when he says, I'm going to die. And here's what he says. He jumps in and he says, Jesus, no, I'll take care of this. I will be your savior. They got to come through me. Imagine telling the son of God that they got to come through me. Now, Jesus says something that's really pretty harsh. I mean, I'm, let's just read it. It's Matthew 16, verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, just after he says, you know, hey, dude, you're the rock. You got it right. Divine revelation. Get behind me, Satan. Ouch. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. At one moment, great clarity. At another moment, fog of self-delusion. And I said this week, what a picture of us. <laughs> There's certain days and certain hours we get it so right. And other times we just kind of yield over to this whole self-interest, narcissistic way of looking and seeing things. Now I look at our world today and I think Satan's strategy is twofold. One is to kill Christians. I mean, if you read the reports, we're living in a time where persecution is unparalleled in human history. There are more people dying, being imprisoned, tortured for Jesus Christ than any other part of history that we've recorded. And it's all around the world. Churches and homes are being burned down. Many meet in secret. They got to risk their lives just to gather for worship. There's a lot of people today living in constant danger, and all this is being ignored in America. We're too busy spending billions of dollars to promote lies about political opponents so we can win a seat of power. We don't read about it in the news, we don't even hear about it in our churches. So I think that's one of his strategies. He's just looking to eliminate, and let's just not talk about it. The other is to distort the gospel. By that I mean change it up, dress it up until we no longer recognize it. There's a book that fascinates me. It was written by an author. Um, she's not a believer as far as I know. It was called The Narcissistic Epidemic, Living in an Age of Entitlement. It was written back in the 80s, but here's what she says, talking about religion. She said, originally religions couldn't enforce narcissism, reducing practices because they didn't have to compete for adherence. If you're born into religion, you usually stay. Now, however, people can select the religion that works for them, often the one that offers the most benefits with the least pain. To compete, religions have to give people what they want because reducing narcissism is not always pleasant. Most people are not going to attend churches that demand humility. I read that and I said, ouch. And I asked myself the question, is our gospel worth suffering and dying for? Now, we know it is. We know many people do. But where are we living? You know, one author I read this past week suggests that we're living in a constant state of fleeing. Fleeing sacrifice, fleeing suffering. And we have the right words, but those words have not gone deep into our hearts. And so our hearts have become distorted. What St. Augustine called distorted love, C.S. Lewis talked about the same thing. And he says, so we're bored, offended, Church is a hassle. We don't like the sermon. Someone is rude to us. We don't feel welcomed. 
So Satan's strategy is pretty simple, isn't it? Shift the revelation of Jesus Christ that is the power of God for salvation to another gospel. And instead of salvation, we end up making prisons of our own making. We end up fighting meaningless battles. When Christ says, take your cross up and follow me, we often take that as a suggestion. (laughs) So faith in Jesus, the gospel, is a complete investment and surrender of the self to God. The truth is we'd rather shape Christ than be shaped by Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about the doctrine of cheap grace. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And later he was the one who said when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, if you haven't noticed, again, personal observation, both of secular uh, sociologists and religious sociologists, they agree on this. They said we live in a culture of chaos. I mean, that's the majority of opinion. Now, secular reasons are different than ours. But the truth is, we haven't thought much about it. I think most of our lives, we've ignored it, hoping it would go away. But we have to understand what it means to be faithful and resilient in 2022 and until he comes again. What does it mean to live faithfully in a world of difference? We will need the courage We will need the encouragement, putting courage in to stand on Jesus Christ, a solid rock. Amen? Amen. Can I ask the worship team to come up? As they do, I want us to pray together. Father God, today we've celebrated one of the most awesome things that you've done. (laughs) You've provided the gospel through your death and resurrection, that we might be delivered from this present evil. And and so I pray, Lord, that we as a church, we at GBC here, we become a church that releases and frees people from evil. That we don't add a burden. We take burdens away through who you are. So I pray, Lord, that you move in and through us in a mighty way that the only thing that people can ever say about what goes on here is it has to be of God because we know those people. They couldn't pull it off. But I thank you, Lord, for what you are doing and I thank you for what you are going to do. But thank you most of all that we remembered this morning who you are and what you've done for us. And may we never, never forget. One day at a time. We stand with courage in our hearts and our minds for the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the revelation of God. It is the power to save. It is the power to deliver us from this present evil. And we pray these things in your name. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand as we worship.